Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of BioBusters, professors hanging out talking science, recorded on August 22nd, 2018. I'm here with Dr. Foner and Dr. Lax. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah. How's everybody doing today? Great. How are you? Not bad. So we just wrapped up our first faculty meeting. Um, exhilarating as always, as most faculty <laughs> meetings are. A um, colossal two hours of faculty meeting. That was interesting. I was going to say maybe you should edit that part out of me saying uh, exhilarating as always. It is exhilarating. I'm going to keep it in. It is okay, exhilarating. that's fine. <laughs> um, and you just got back from a wide variety Canada. of vacations. Canada, yeah, yeah. I was, and, I was in Canada, yeah. and uh, before that I was in Boston. Uh, good trip. But, of course, in the midst of everything, you had to make time to come back here and get into the lab, right? Get in the lab and record an episode on the opioid epidemic. So we're here with Dr. Neil Lax. Uh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So so you're new at Teal. Tell, yes. uh, tell us a bit about you. So I just started here at Teal a week ago. I'm the new uh, visiting assistant professor in neuroscience, and I just graduated and defended uh, my dissertation from Duquesne University in July. And that's in Pittsburgh, right? Yeah, that's in Pittsburgh, so not too far away from here, only about two hours. Um, getting all moved in and everything now, and happy to be at Teal. I think... Uh, the Cornell alumnus is feeling a little ganged Left up on out. Yeah, you both went Duquesne to Duquesne. Alumni yeah. Here. Indeed, yeah. indeed. I am outnumbered. I got to go get me a degree from Duquesne. So what did you do your PhD on? So uh, my PhD research was involved in a drug discovery project where I was looking for novel compounds from envir environmental sources um, to find new ways of potentially treating uh, pain, depression, or anxiety. And I did all my work using animal models of behavior, where we would take these compounds from the environment, uh, essentially inject them into animals, and see if they had any changes in the way they responded to things that we perceive as pain or depression, uh, like responses in these animals. And that's what I did a majority of my work on. And what kind of animals do you guys use for the model organism? So my model organism was mice, and okay. we used um, all of uh, the assays that I did were uh, involving those little guys there. Cool. Yeah, sometimes I think about the number of mice that went into my PhD, and uh, you don't want to do the math on that one. No, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah I remember cleaning out my desk at the end of the semester uh, af after I was done defending, and the stack was pretty tall, so yeah, yeah. I, we all use quite a bit. So that makes it kind of fortuitous that recent Duquesne graduate, especially in the field of pain and relating to depression and whatnot, and those are going to be some topics that we definitely hit today, right? right. Oh, effects of pain the field of pain, and how it relates to the development of potentially other disorders such as depression. But I don't want to spoil too much. No. Right. Well, before we get into that, uh, you did some research this summer, right? I did. Um, four weeks of research, and it formed a foundational basis for research that's going to be coming up this coming academic year. Um, a student, rising senior in conservation biology by the name of Grant Milne, cheap plug there, he did a lot of field work where he... He has to listen to this episode now. No, no, it's part of his independent... <laughs> well, I don't have him for independent study, but... Um, well, I'll, just, I'll, I'll have another professor fail him for that if he doesn't <laughs> uh, listen. But he did some field work around Teal's campus, not only surveying and monitoring what are the amphibian species that hang out in the back of the woods next to the science connector, but also down in Riverside Park. Also, we did a survey of if that nasty chytrid fungus is localized or found anywhere in the nearby woods, which would be bad news if it's made its way all the way up near, you know, Teal's wooded areas. So There goes the salamanders. 
Well, the, like, the good thing is the species of salamander that seems to be most uh, abundant around here appears to be largely protected from this chytrid fungus. Well, it's that redback salamander. Very good news. So part of our research, he did a lot of DNA extraction. Now this coming year, we need to get qPCR back up and running and actually do PCR on those swabs to see, A, does it have the chytrid fungus, and B, if we can get bacterial primers, what sorts of bacterial species are on the backs of the skin of these salamanders. Nice, mm -hmm. nice. Okay. Well, uh, so let's get right to it, right? So we had an email uh, sent to us uh, to effectively discuss the opioid epidemic. And uh, for those of you that do not know our email, it's thebiobusters at gmail.com. So that's T-H-E-B-I-O-B-U-S-T-E-R-S at gmail.com. And you can uh, uh, email us and request a particular topic. So today we're going to talk about opioids. So uh, what are they? So opioids are, you know, a class of drugs that basically comprise extremely strong painkillers. And I'm certain that whether it be through the news or, uh, God forbid, um, somebody in the family, painkillers are these classes of drugs that are not only very, very potent and good at their job, but they can also be quite addictive, right? And they so can, there's different classes of those drugs, right? There are different classes of the drugs. So, for example, example oxycodone, you may know this by, I guess you could call it its street name, oxycontin or oxys, or as the kids Percocet. call them, Percocets or Perks, right? You also have hydrocodone. Uh, is it called Perks? That's new to me. I don't know. I saw that in a movie. <laughs> I have not heard that, but it could be true. I seem to remember seeing that. Well, I guess none of us buy it, right? So <laughs> listen, <laughs> none of us know the name. <laughs> listen, growing up watching Law & Order SVU, I'm pretty sure I heard them called Perks. I think that's my favorite SVU. The law I mean, favorite Law & Order. Oh, law yeah, order. SVU is my favorite Law & Order. Well, they're easily confusable, right? There's only been about 15 of them in the past 10 <laughs> years. Um, the second class would be painkiller known as hydrocodone, so you may know it as Vicodin, and another one that is extremely strong known as fentanyl, and this is one that's synthesized to resemble opium-derived heroin and morphine. So, so are the other ones then naturally occurring? So, are so, so some opioids are naturally occurring, like morphine, which was discovered in the late 1800s, is actually derived from the opium poppy. So it is right. a natural product, similar to the work that I did, derived from a uh, common flower, um, and now we synthesize it in the lab. But yes, some of these things are just naturally occurring in the environment. Did anyone of you ever watch Seinfeld? I did uh, not. Bits and pieces. I, never religiously, but I've okay. seen most episodes, I'd say. Remember that one episode where she, uh, where Elaine tests positive for heroin addiction because she eats so much poppy seed bagels? Yeah, I saw that, and I also... Which is a thing, apparently. Well, I also heard of a few, might, might have been urban legends, about anybody going in for a drug test or a drug screening if they did binge a bunch of, you know, poppy seed bagels could potentially test positive. They'd have to eat quite They'd a lot of bagels, lot of though. It's not one poppy seed bagel's not going to make you fail it, I Dozens think. and dozens, most yeah. likely, over a short period of time. So what are these uh, opioids used for? So these are primarily used for pain relief. Um, sometimes they're used for things like anesthesia as well. And typically they're um, used for mild to severe pain, but oftentimes um, they actually get used for anything from very moderate pain all the way up to that severe category. 
and they're really important for people that are recovering from surgery um, due to getting cut, things like that. These types of very strong pain relievers are needed so people aren't suffering from the consequences of their surgery, getting them back up and running. Um, but these, these, uh, this class of drugs can also be used commonly for um, end-of-life care and um, for terminal pain, people suffering from very debilitating types of cancer. Um, those types of things are what these drugs are mostly intended for. Um, the one thing that is really starting to cause to be a problem is they're not intended for chronic pain management um, because there are many risks that we'll talk about shortly associated with these opioids that if you have chronic pain, which is pain lasting for months and months on end, taking something like an opioid has many, many more risks than um, benefits of alleviating your chronic pain. And I think that's the danger, right, is that historically in the past few decades, and maybe it was just a lack of knowledge about all of these dangerous side effects and the addictive side effects, but I would say historically, for the like I said, for the past few decades, it's been viewed that they can be used for chronic pain management, right? And it's only been in the last few years or last decade or so that we're starting to realize, wow, opioid epidemic around the country, you know, other parts of the world, that there have to be other mitigation strategies for helping an individual who suffers from chronic pain. Well, yeah, this, I mean, this is one of these things where pharmaceutical companies assured the public that these things are not addictive, right? And that's how we sort of started this opioid epidemic. Right. I think like 20, 30 years from now, this is going to be one of these things we look back at the same way we now look at uh, tobacco. And, you know, Tobacco ads or smoking ads from the 40s, 50s with a doctor with a lab coat saying, oh, I smoke camels for whatever, you know, like it's good for you, right? And now we know that's not true. Or right, not and I think the, the same type of lobbying that occurred with yeah. tobacco companies back in, I guess, the 50s or 60s occurred, um, what I've looked at in about the late 90s, where corporations really started lob lobbying the importance of pain management, mm -hmm. saying how important it is for people not to suffer from pain, which that is very true, but they essentially almost lied in saying that you could take these things like um, OxyContin and it won't be dangerous, you'll live a better life from it. And now we know 20, 30 years later that there are severe consequences for having availability of these drugs over a long period of time. So they're very good at their job. The painkillers are absolutely. Right. They, they, they're they are. Very, they're, but they're very highly potent, addictive. But and that's the next big topic, right? And this is something that maybe a lot of people don't understand the specifics of. If these painkillers are so good at treating pain and alleviating pain, why is it then that we have what is now classified as an epidemic? And that comes down to the biology and physiology of addiction. So the question becomes: Are they addictive? Yeah, I think we can all yeah, agree the resounding yes. Everybody These are knows that now. physically addictive drugs. We exactly. know that. There's not much debate there. But then the the addiction risks became apparent late, right? So right. Th this started with companies saying in the 90s they're not addictive. Doctors prescribed them frequently, more commonly, and uh, more prescriptions were written. And then obviously, just with any drug that causes any addiction, widespread misuse occurred. Right. Overprescription really led to this wide availability, which got us started in this epidemic. Well, especially as we're going to get into in a few minutes, when it comes to conditioning and becoming kind of desensitized to opioids and chronic use of opioids, is the fact that eventually, if you're taking too much of it, any type of drug, what can you eventually possibly lead to? 
overdoses, right? Right, right? And that's particularly what we've been seeing since approximately, what, 2010, late 2000s, is this idea that from when this overprescription started in the late 90s, now you're seeing a very, very rapid increase in overdose deaths, right? Um, starting so what, what are some of the stats then? Let's talk about statistics. So with the stats, I mean, currently on average, around 115 Americans die per day from the opioids. And Neil, and what were you saying about that number? Yeah, I was looking at the, the statistics for that, and that was 115 people. That's twice the number of American soldiers that were killed during the height of the Vietnam War are now dying from the opioid epidemic in America. It's crazy. And even, you know, when compared to something as deadly as a war, of course, but think about different types of cancers, right? There's a stat here that says between 2014 and 15, opioid overdoses accounted for 60% of the U.S. drug overdose mortality rate at approximately 32,000 deaths between 2014 and 15. Mm -hmm. That's in and one in that, year. In that That's one year, year 32,000 deaths due to opioid-related overdoses, that was more than the individuals that died of prostate cancer in that same year. That was at 27,000. So we're looking at approximately 5,000 more people that died from these overdoses compared to something as deadly yeah. as prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. You're also, well, I mean, the... I mean, I like that, except that with with prostate cancer, you're only looking at men, though, right? Of course. Yeah. 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 So it's a little bit biased, right? Right. Um, I wonder what's it like for a cancer that equally, uh, you know, attacks Affects both. everybody as opioids do. But course. I mean, that's still a large number. Yeah, that's absolutely. There's no denying the... Yeah. Well, and the even, I think, extent. more... Oh, sorry to cut no, you that's off. That's okay. There. An even more kind of staggering statistic that we kind of collectively have found is that so 2014 to 15, 32,000 deaths. In 2016, the census found that 42,000 died due to opioid-related overdoses. So just in the span of, what, approximately one to two years, you're seeing a 10,000 death increase due to right. opioid overdoses. And what's the percent of people, uh, so what are the likelihood that you would get addicted if you prescribed opioid uh, medicine? So coming in at approximately 10%, right? 10% of patients that are prescribed painkillers eventually develop an opioid use disorder, so yeah. develop an addiction. And how many total uh, prescriptions were dispensed, uh, say, you know, recently? Do we know? Um, I think the latest stat is from 2014, and I think about 245 million prescriptions were written for some type of opioid pain relief. That's so crazy. It's crazy. And I actually have another stat here that kind of just really shows the true overprescribing of this. There's actually 11 states that more opioid prescriptions were written in those states than people that live in those states. So, for example, New Hampshire, a state of 1.3 million people, in a span of three months, 13 million doses of opioid drugs were used that's for 1.3 million people. And that's, that's only nuts. in three months. That's staggering. Wow. And again, you hear that word, I think, thrown out a lot, the term epidemic. epidemic. I would say in terms of any current, now this is arguable, of course, but in terms of any other type of disorder or potential sickness, this is an epidemic. And the sad state of it is if it was just better managed a few decades ago, we wouldn't be where we are today. It was a simple lack of knowledge, potential ignorance, and the whole overprescription phenomenon. Yeah, that's really what caused it is that vast over easy over availability of all of these pills in the in the country 
Yeah, you know, the other thing that uh, we looked at, you know, uh, so doctors now aware of this epidemic are prescribing less of those uh, uh, prescriptions or trying to see how we can reduce the number of prescriptions out there. But it turns out there's a lot of miseducation, even with the doctors, about what those drugs are or used for. And a lot of them have admitted that they don't know how to properly prescribe or safely prescribe uh, opioid uh, drugs or how to even detect abuse or emerging addiction. That's exactly right. And I think another thing is not only do doctors sometimes not know when to prescribe these, when they do prescribe them, I don't think they tell patients a lot of the potential side effects right. of, you know, this is a highly addictive substance you're about to take. Yes, it's going to help your pain, your post-surgery, whatever it might be, but there could potentially be some long-term consequences. And I think a lot of times doctors leave that information out when um, prescribing these drugs. Mm -hmm. Or any other drugs for that matter. You know, like just thinking, I mean, how many times have you had a prescription and you've had effectively zero talk with a doctor about potential side effects. Right. That's one of the larger strategies that are hopefully currently still being worked on and adopted is this idea of potentially, this sounds weird, I mean, we're all doctors now, right? But potentially better training and right. holding medical doctors accountable for how they actually go about prescribing these opioids. If the idea is the big fault here over-prescription of opioids, then obviously the buck has to stop with the doctor. If yeah. that requires more oversight or just better training of when and when not to prescribe opioids, then that's what it has to take at this point. Exactly. Sure, sure, absolutely. So uh, anything else you guys want to talk about in terms of uh, statistics, what the drugs are, that kind of stuff? Should we talk about the three waves of overdose deaths? And then uh, that'll put us probably at halfway through. I think we seem to cover that a decent amount. Um, I know the CDC has reported that uh, between 1999 and 2016, now this is collectively, we've stated a few years with a certain number of deaths, but... So what's uh, that, uh, four, 15, no, what, uh, 17 years? Is that right? Yeah, that's 17 years. 17 so years. 99 okay. to 2016, about 350,000 people in the U.S., died from overdoses involving opioids. And in that state, there were three major waves of overdose deaths. First, in the late 90s, due to an increase in prescriptions. Then there was wave two, which started in 2010 due to heroin uh, deaths. And that was a very, very large and rapid increase. Uh, heroin became quite deadly in that time frame, late 2000s going into 2010. So is, is that effectively uh, uh, drug addicts or patients sort of or whoever abuses drugs, you know, or is it availability of what kind of drug is available on the street? So it's moved from prescription type to heroin, is that? Right, so I think what happens is once people take these drugs from a doctor, whoever might have prescribed it, they become hooked and these addicts then try to turn to cheaper or better ways um, to get a high from them in the black market. So like a gateway type. Yeah, exactly. This is a gateway type drug. All these that are legally prescribed opioids lead to heroin abuse. And it's been shown that about four out of five heroin users um, started with a prescription opioid and then got hooked on the heroin later on. Wow. So it's really deadly. I mean, that's a pretty drastic transition going from abuse of painkillers to now abuse of heroin. Right.
And I think another interesting statistic related to the heroin is um, heroin's been around for over 100 years. It was made first in the uh, 1880s as this type of uh, thing that was trying to find a less addictive form of morphine, and it started being sold as a, a cough suppressant, but it really didn't get abused very much in the early 1900s all the way up through the 1990s. And it's uh, since 2002, the heroin addicts have increased by over 500 percent. Cool. And we can correlate that with the rapid increase in the dispensing of opioid of prescriptions. Prescription. Yeah, because okay. this very addictive drug has been around for a century. But now that we've had these legal prescriptions available and people are getting hooked, we see this increase now um, by 500 percent, like I just said, um, 10 years ago. Um, that's that's really creating a crisis. So there's a definite link there, right? There's Absolutely. that association between opioid painkillers and heroin, heroin use, yeah. And that can go, you know, kind of bi-directionally. Heroin abuse could lead to opioids, or sure. opioids could lead sure. to heroin abuse. And there was a third wave of deaths in 2013, right? But that was due to synthetic fentanyl. Yeah, synthetic drugs, particularly a class of those known as fentanyl. Mm-hmm. Do we know if that? So that's is that is that stronger than heroin? I believe it is 50 times stronger than heroin. Oh, crazy. All right. Anything else you want to add on these before we move on to a different topic? I think we covered that pretty well, but the major question we still haven't answered that we need to get to is the biology of addiction. Yeah, right? we'll do that in the uh, second section. So for those of you listening to us on the radio, we're going to take a quick music break. And for those of you listening on the podcast, we're just going to power through. Cool. Sounds good. Great. All right. Let's take a quick break. All right. So we are uh, back. Uh, so where, what do we want to pick it up on? Well, I think the next major, arguably the most important topic that we have yet to hit that we should for our just Listeners. amazing all audience, all two, all two of our amazing <laughs> audience. You and I. Is, uh, exactly. And now Neil. So yeah. three. So we three, got three, three but, yeah, for this episode. <laughs> but um, what is the physiology behind not only how opioids work, but also how opioids eventually cause a, an addiction disorder, right? Okay. So opioids, obviously painkillers, right? They're going to block sensations of pain and pain transmissions going up the spine and into the brain. But what else do opioids do? And this is kind of the nasty side effect mm-hmm. of why they eventually become so addictive. So what makes it so good to take? Exactly. So opioids, what they do in, in addition to relieving pain, like uh, Chris just said, was they overstimulate the reward system in your brain um, that causes the release of this neurotransmitter called dopamine that normally drives um, things that make you feel good in life. But what happens is once you take these opioids, you overstimulate that reward system so much that you just, normal everyday things stop feeling pleasurable to you. And this is what really causes the getting hooked on the drug and needing more and more of it to get the same type of pleasurable sensation um, over time. And that's what really lets people get hooked on it is this just constant change in what we call the set point in um, uh, drug overdose. And even dopamine itself, I mean, it's one of the, I would argue, one of the most important neurotransmitters in the brain, right? It not only Mm -hmm. drives pleasurable experiences, it drives, you know, drug-seeking behavior, it drives behavior that that individual wants to obviously feel that great sense of pleasure, that sensation of pleasure in their brain. It's also been implicated in, you know, basic cognitive abilities, basic cognitive function, as well as a drive for movement, right? So once you movement, start... Meaning like, you know, getting up and doing stuff? Right, motivational okay. behavior. Yeah. Okay, motivational is usually what it's behavior. called. Okay. Yeah. 
And once you start messing around with the concentrations of that neurotransmitter, how much is released, but also the availability of the receptors that bind dopamine, you're in big trouble. And Neil mentioned that um, change set point, right? So normally in everyday activities, something that makes you happy, right? Let's go around the room. One thing that makes me happy is a really good movie that I watch or going for a run. I get a sense of, you know, pleasure from that. That would make me miserable going for a run. Well, you've said to me before that human beings are not adapted and evolved (laughs) for long, strenuous running. We'll talk about that in another (laughs) podcast. But anyway, it gives me pleasure. It brings me a sense of reward. I feel like I've accomplished something great, even if it's a paltry two-mile run. You've accomplished damage to your knees and the rest of your body. So that brings me pleasure. Even a good movie. My fiance will yell at me. I love the Avengers movies. Watched the recent one just a week or so ago. 500 times in a row. Well, I'm at 250, but I'll get to 500 before (laughs) next week. So what brings you pleasure, Delbert? I don't know. That's a tough one. Uh, I mean, I I like being out on the lake, right? I like being out on the water. Uh, Every time I'm I'm on my paddle board, I'm in heaven. Neil? See, I'm the exact opposite of Chris. I, there's nothing more I love than getting home, sitting on the couch, watching Netflix, chilling after a long day. That brings me pleasure. I, I like where he's at. See, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, with, Netflix, a, with a piece of steak on, on the grill. Right, and, yeah, right. I like nice, where he's nice at. Nice snack. Well, remember, we just came off of a summer where most of us, minus some, a person who was defending and researching that for most of their time and right. finding this job at Teal, uh, most of us were coming off of a summer where we had a little bit of a break. I was right there Netflixing, grilling, and basically just being a layabout like, you know, maybe some other professors. Layabout is a strong word. I apologize. I'm not calling anybody out. But think about those favorite activities. I'm keeping During, that in, by the way. I don't care. That's <laughs> fine. I'll risk it. Everybody loves me, right? So... During our favorite activities, anytime you're doing something, Netflix, running, paddleboarding on the lake, normal amount of dopamine is going to be released, and that's what associates our favorite activities with pleasure. It's going to keep us going back to those favorite activities so that we get that sense of reward and pleasure. However, chronic and long-term abuse of opioids is going to alter that set point of basically dopamine being released inside of the brain. And what that then does is it's going to cause these activities that usually bring about dopamine concentrations for reward, they're not going to be as pleasurable as they once were. You're still releasing dopamine, it just doesn't have the same effect. Right, exactly. So when we're running, kayaking, or watching TV, a little bit of dopamine is getting released, just a very small amount that our brains are used to having that feeling of this feels good. When you do an opioid, though, the amount... uh, that you release when you're doing your pleasurable activities normally is minuscule compared to the amount of dopamine that's going to be released after an opioid's taken. So that's really the difference. And your brain, almost it's impossible to adjust back to where it was before that. And it's just like whenever you get into your car and you had the radio up, you know, earlier in the morning you get into your car and the radio is just incredibly loud, right? What's the first thing you're going to do, your first instinct? It's going to be to turn that radio down. That's exactly what your brain is doing after chronic opioid abuse. It's going to cause dopamine to either be lowered or the amount of receptors that is able to bind dopamine to be lowered as well. When that happens, when you either decrease the amount of dopamine that's going to be released in the brain or the receptors it combined to, the reward and physiological response to dopamine is lowered, and that's what drives regular opioid abusers to need much larger amounts for the same high that they experienced, you know, weeks or months before. And that's the underlying theory of what we call tolerance. Yeah. Now, is there, a, I don't know much about dopamine, is, is there a cap 
of the amount of dopamine dopamine that could be released at one time. I mean, it it's ultimately limited by the number of receptors that can respond to it. And right? how quickly it's being synthesized, right, yeah. and released by the nerve endings, of course. In terms of a cap... Um, I'm not sure. I would say... Is it always m- more than you need, effectively? I would say the amount... Or the ability to produce is more than what you're actually... Well, everything's going to be constrained, right? You're not going to be able to make a endless supply of these things. Um, everything needs to be recycled. Neurotransmitters need to be recycled, and the components put back together in order to release the same neurotransmitter. So, in terms so normally dopamine gets broken down, right, after it's released or after it binds to a receptor or does whatever it's supposed to do. It can be reuptaken yeah, by that right. releasing nerve ending. Okay. It can be broken down by an enzyme so that you're not being overstimulated. Okay. I would say based on, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know, Neil or Delbert, but based on physiological response, there's only, there should be a cap because yeah. chronic release and stimulation by dopamine wouldn't be good for the body. Right. That co- right. constant sense would drive somebody to be, maybe that's what underlies these fear seekers, you know, these people who are addicted to exciting um, things like skydiving and whatnot. I'm going off on a tangent here. but No, that's fine. Yeah, sky, right? Skydiving is fun. We had a bunch of students jump off of uh, planes for skydiving this summer in New Zealand. That was fun. Sounds wow. terrifying. I don't think I'll ever do that. Yeah, I don't think I could do that either. No, no, that was that was that was really nice. Did you do it? I did not. I did not do the plain one. I've done it before. I didn't do it in, in New Zealand though, but it, I recommend it. So what else can happen here whenever we're getting kind of disruption and this kind of severe maladaptive effect on amounts of dopamine? That's what we've really concentrated on. Well, actually, long-term opioid abuse can affect other of those neurotransmitters inside of the brain. Remember, these neurotransmitters, for anybody who's not aware, these are things that communicate and allow, you know, different parts of the brain, different neurons in the brain to communicate to one another for sensation, perception, um, sensation of pleasurable feelings, Mm -hmm. etc. Another thing that opioids can do is affect a neurotransmitter known as glutamate, and that has a very important role in cognitive function. So once you start affecting... Is that the same thing as glutamic acid? Uh, uh, yeah, I think so, it is. Yes. Yeah. yes. Um, we can ask uh, Dr. Franz, maybe bring her into yeah, the next can, episode. Just for that one question. Get into the biochemistry <laughs> of this. But once you start affecting that neurotransmitter, you're starting to affect cognition now. You're starting to affect exactly the way your brain thinks and processes information, which, of course, is a very bad sign. Yeah, so you start having trouble with things like learning. You also change your habits and memory systems. And this can also, all these changes in your brain can lead to something called conditioning, where something in your environment cues you to associate it with the drug, and this can cause intense cravings for the drug. And it's just another way that these opioids can cause problems for people when they see something in their everyday life that causes them to crave this highly addictive substance. So that's like a, so conditioning sort of like a, think of Pavlov and his dog. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, the ringing of the bell, that exact like thing. Right. And, you know, your brain is highly sophisticated and highly complex, right? Whenever well, maybe you, yours is. <laughs> well, I didn't want to speak for everybody, of course. But when you constantly activate that reward circuit of the brain, the brain is going to remember it, not only remember just how pleasurable that action of taking an opioid is, but it's going to tell 
it's going to tell the rest of your body that that drug-seeking behavior is very, very important and that you should continue to do it. It basically becomes a habit that you no longer are able to physiologically control. Yeah, and it controls you then at that point. Exactly. And then hence the addiction. Exactly. Okay. And uh, so what are some of the other health consequences other than sort of the conditioning, the addiction? Does it affect, I mean, obviously the brain controls everything, right? But does it, what does it affect? Well, it can affect um, the respiratory system. So that's what eventually, after very, very long-term and chronic abuse, it can eventually lead to sometimes a shutting down of the respiratory system, thus making it harder to breathe. That's usually evident in a lot of the overdose cases Mm -hmm. that are linked to opiate abuse. And that's not lung function, it's just... That would be brain function. That would be the area of the brain that controls your... Getting the signal to breathe. Exactly. Not necessarily that your lungs are damaged in any way. Exactly. Yeah, there are opioid receptors all over the brain in different Mm -hmm. regions of the body. So one of the things is respiratory depression Mm -hmm. that can happen, like Chris just said. It can also cause sedation and drowsiness. So, you know, operating heavy machinery while you're prescribing your opiates is probably not a good idea. I'd even hazard to operate one of those old-time push lawnmowers whenever you're, you know, over overdosing whenever you're uh, abusing opiates sorry or even taking the prescription right yeah it's not you don't have to be chronically addicted Mm -hmm. to these to have these side effects can also have some pretty damaging effects on the digestive system Um, it can cause really severe uh, nausea sometimes even vomiting especially when you try to go cold turkey and uh, stop taking opiates. It can eventually lead to those feelings of nausea, severe nausea and stomach sickness. It can also cause constipation, which is something that I don't think anybody ever wants to experience. Long-term effects and damage from the opiates can lead to inhibition of overall digestive function. Mm -hmm. And that's because of those opioid receptors. Like I said, they're not just in the brain, they're all in the digestive tract. So a lot of times when people are getting hooked on these as well, you might have even seen commercials um, on TV for things to take care of opioid-induced constipation mm-hmm. and try to reduce the side effects associated with these drugs. Yeah, that's a good point you brought up, Niels, the fact that we really spent a lot of the episode talking about effects of opiates in the brain and the receptors there, but opioid receptors are everywhere in mm-hmm. the body, and that's why it makes these damaging effects so far-reaching so inside the human right. body. Exactly. Neil, you said you had uh, done some of your work on not only pain, but also depression as well. Um, can you tell us anything about, we know opiates are bad physiologically right. for the body, but what else can it do to make you at risk for other disorders? So one thing um, that my research looked at um, during my dissertation was that there's this very strong link between pain and depression. And oftentimes if somebody is in pain and people taking opioids, obviously, some of them are in a chronic pain state, they often develop depression later on as a secondary uh, condition associated with it. And about 10% of about 100,000 patients that were surveyed from 2016 ended up developing depression um, in addition to that chronic pain um, that they started out with. So that there's, you know, like we said, there's not just these initial um, changes in the brain with pain and all the other side effects, but you can lead to other psychological conditions as a result of that these drugs. And just to clarify, by chronic pain, you mean people with chronic pain that are taking drugs for it, not just, or is there a relation? Maybe maybe there is. Is there a, 
relationship between just having pain and depression? Yeah, that was what my, my okay. research, research looked at. Um, there's almost always a link between people that are depressed and people that are in pain. They rarely occur in isolation once you enter that uh, uh, chronic stage. They almost always occur okay. hand in hand. Okay. And we call that comorbidity. It was part okay. of my thesis that looked at that. Why, why are these conditions comorbid like that? And I think that's why studying not only how pain and eventual opiate, opiate abuse can lead to development of something like depression, it makes that so hard to study, right? Is the fact that depression is often multifactorial, um, multifactorial right. comorbid with so many other things such as brain chemistry imbalances and drug and alcohol abuse. And this is not, we're not saying that this is a causal relationship, right? We're saying that right. these are linked. If you're depressed, you can sometimes lead or be led to over abuse of opiates, but also if you start out by abusing opiates, you can then become depressed exactly. just based on the opiate function in the brain. Mm -hmm. So if dopamine, yeah, I mean, if the drug is addictive because sort of what it does to the brain and the dopamine response, why is dopamine itself just secreted naturally by your brain not addictive? Or is it addictive? Naturally? I would say that natural secretion, just based on the constraints of the human body, it would not be addictive. So this is just a dose issue. Yeah. It would be a dose issue, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Okay. So if you're, and think about this anytime, you know, most anything that you do to upset the kind of inner chemistry, inner body chemistry Balance, of the yeah. human, right? Um, we're always trying to be at a set point of homeostasis, right? So anytime you mess with any of these neurotransmitters, any of these chemicals in the body, you throw your body out of that delicate balance, your body's going to try to adjust that, but with opioid abuse, you keep on going back, right? You keep on seeking that rewarding behavior that your brain is now telling you is natural. Your brain has no other uh, recourse but to tell you this is a good feeling, keep on seeking it. By that point, you're upsetting dopamine imbalance and dopamine numbers, and you've now become an addict. Okay. Well, we've got a few minutes before we want to wrap up, right? So literally, actually, a minute and a half, but we can go a little bit over. Um, let's talk about treatments, right? So what are we doing as a nation to treat this, and what can someone uh, who is addicted do, uh, and uh, what should physicians be doing? So. What are some of the strategies outlined nationwide? Uh, are there any? So one of, there are several different, what they call mitigation strategies that are aiming to re-examine and revise the education on, you know, how to prescribe and how to go about properly taking opioid prescriptions, right? One of the main methods that they're focusing on is educating patients on what's called diversion and transferring of medication. So diversion and transferring of medication, that's when, let's say... And by patients, we mean those already addicted? By or patients, it would be everybody, I would say. That so yeah, people that are just on drugs. it might okay. not be addicted yet, but exactly. it's almost inevitable with these. So. so what you're trying to do is really educate patients, and I would hazard to say even the doctors, on proper prescribing techniques and also teaching the patient that sometimes, not sometimes, it's always wrong to, let's say, give away a medication. Let's say if I had a really bad migraine and you had a prescription for a low-grade opioid, 
you saw that I was in pain and you said, here, go ahead and take that. Well, if you were in pain, I'd leave you being pain. Well, that's the hallmark of evolution. I learned from that pain and I, you know, better adapt and survive, of course. But if we were not scientists and you had a heart, you would take that pill or whatever medication and you would give it to me and say, here, pal, this will make you feel better. That goes on quite a lot in this country. There's a lot of what we call diversion and transferring of medication. I mean, you see that a lot too where medication is just left in medicine cabinets, right? Not so proper... Antibiotics not finished. Uh, yeah, the abu misuse of drugs is not just with this one, right? Like exactly. All sorts of prescribed medications that go that are not taken like they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So that's one technique. Another technique is better screening tools to identify patients who might have a substance abuse disorder. Having the records available at every hospital nationwide that will allow monitoring of drug-seeking behavior and patients who are at risk for developing a substance abuse. That requires slightly more time, contact between the doctor and the patient. Which in might our not sort always... of overstrained system, doctors sometimes have five minutes with a patient and they got to move on. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And of course, there has to be a strict doctor-patient agreement on adherence, like some type of contract that's going to hold the patient accountable for taking the proper amounts of the opioid, then getting off of the opioid, depending on what type of you know illness or injury they're treating with that opioid. Right. Everything we've described here, not only is it very, very hard to put into effect, but it's very, very hard to have a degree of oversight on this, right? right. So this is a complex issue. There's not going to be a one and done, you know, tie ribbon on it fix. It's going to take a lot of participation from almost every doctor nationwide, but also all patients. Whether this comes about or not, there's a limited data set. It's not certain right now whether these mitigation strategies are entirely effective. But you have to attack the source of the problem somehow, and this is it. And it is a huge problem that needs review. Exactly. Absolutely. I think we're at about 40-some minutes, right? So anything else you guys want to add before we wrap this up? I would just say that increased education, right? Increased um, awareness of how deadly a problem this opioid epidemic is. It's nice to see that our government is now making it a... Um, highlighted point, the current administration, through, you know, whatever various faults from the past few months and years, um, I believe uh, Mr. Trump has said either last year or the year before that he now recognizes and his administration recognizes that the opioid epidemic is a public emergency, right? I mean, hopefully they're doing something about it. I have not been following uh, that myself, so, but I don't know. Uh, recognizing it's a problem is one thing, but actually committing the amount of money and dollars to it is another, right? Exactly. And we're all, seems like we're all broke in this country, but um, anything else? No, that's it, I think. Thank you guys for having me. It's been great Absolutely. being a guest on the show. Yeah, hopefully you want to come back. Well, we'll see. Definitely. Thank um, you. Of course, Neil. Thanks for stopping by. Absolutely. So um, I guess we'll sign off. This has been another episode of BioBusters. Professors hanging out talking science. Remember, you can email us any questions you have or uh, topics you would like us to discuss at thebiobusters at gmail.com. That's T H E B I O B U S T E R S at gmail.com. And one of the episodes coming up in the next several weeks will actually be the science of weird phenomena. So different phenomena that exist in the world, anything from ghosts to sleep paralysis. 
what is the biology behind and the science behind these different phenomena that people experience. If you have a weird phenomenon that you experience in your daily life that you want to have answered by science, please email us at that uh, email address and Absolutely. we'll answer it. All right. Sounds interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.